what he said. Yeah. Because I don't think people ask that interesting of questions. No, they didn't. Oh my god, what a nightmare. <laughs> Alright, welcome to a documentary podcast where we come up with very intricate and clever names for things. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Josh. We are both filmmakers based out of Denver, Colorado, and we talk about nonfiction cinema. Because we love it. Yeah, we love it, and we think they need to be treated like movies and not just intricate YouTube videos. Or boring things old people watch. Yeah. All right, so on this episode, we will be talking about a film called When Lambs Become Lions. But first, what have you been working on? Um, I've been doing quite the variety of stuff lately. Um, unfortunately, not any of my own projects right now because I'm trying to actually have filmmaking be my sole job right now. So I've been doing a lot of commercial work, um, working on a feature that was from Chicago. So luckily, I've been working with a lot of like outside productions from New York, LA, Chicago when they come shoot here. Um, I've actually been working in the art department, which I actually really like on feature films. Nice. But yeah. What does the art department do? Everything you see. But yeah, for non-filmmakers, even in commercial, even in doc, well, not documentary, or if you're doing a sit-down interview, then yeah, it's sort of basically everything that's kind of put in front of the screen, as much as that can be part of the cinematographer's job. It's also, I mean, set dressing. They help with locations, depending on how small of a film it is. Um, making sure like things read well on camera, like you don't want like a giant red set of flowers in the middle of a table unless it actually means something, you know? Nice. So yeah. What do you like best about it? Um, I love creating spaces. Um, if you listened to the last podcast, you probably heard they talked a lot how I think space is just as important as character. And so with that, you can tell so much. And I think exhibition tells so much. I also love thrift stores, so one of the jobs when you're in the art department is just to go to thrift stores and find cool stuff to put in a scene. So I do want to correct myself on the last episode because I mentioned Errol Morris being someone who just puts somebody, their face on camera and has them talk to it. But really, his movies are definitely about the space. Mm-hmm. The lighting. He, the, the lighting, everything. Because he's one of the few filmmakers, like even um, A Brief History of Time, mm-hmm. you know? Like how he rebuilt uh, Stephen Hawking's office on a soundstage. And they rebuilt his house on a soundstage. The whole, all the interviews were done on a soundstage. And it, it definitely gives the movie this this otherworldly kind of feeling. Very so, uncomfortable. A yeah. Bit creep. Like, I like how he does that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it it's everything feels a little off, which I think mm-hmm. is not in all of his films, but in when it needs to be. I'd say that's a common thread. Like, that's why I like yeah. them, because he just sort of points at how, like, bizarre our world is that we operate in, and, like, the people he studies, it's like he pulls out their, like, I can never say this word, um, in eccentricities eccentricities yeah okay i'll I'll change the word he just like pulls out intricacies yeah intricacies of them um and just what makes people unique and what makes people unique is often quite bizarre yeah totally i think uh i'll give you that and so i'm pulling a retraction from the last (laughs) episode because of that because right when you said that it just like i had that 
moment of that thought of a brief history of time when Stephen Hawking is in his office and you're kind of like, the lighting in this office is weird and it's because it's very intentional and it's definitely about the space. Mm-hmm. So I feel you there. Um, are there any projects like that you want to do of your own that you're oh, so thinking many. about? So many. Um, I think I want to give myself enough time. I think the issue in the past is for documentary, I've rushed into it or I've had deadlines placed upon me. And I think when I've talked with people who I admire in the industry or further on, they've worked on their projects for years. Because yeah. I think when you're dealing with real life and stuff changes so quickly, you need that time to sort of develop the story, get to know the people. Um, so unfortunately, there's not any I want to make in like this immediate moment. Um, my end goal, I'd love to make a long documentary about like transient populations as someone who's moved around a lot and done a lot of reading about like populations that move. I'd like to do it like vignettes of different sorts of people who move around and place that together to sort of potentially put the argument that I think we need to be more mobile as humans, but also as like a self exploration of like why I am the way I am in a bit. I think that's why we all make films is to figure ourselves out. So what about you? What are you working on right now? Or have coming down eventually yeah uh i have like a million documentaries i want to make and i'm just kind of at that point where i'm like which one do i focus on and what do i want to spend the next like three years of my life Mm -hmm. on and um for what i'm actually working on right now i'm finishing up editing a feature film and we got picture lock done. Yay. So now we're at the, and color is pretty much done. So we're kind of just tweaking wow. the sound and we're, you know, figuring out exactly what the music's going to be. So just the little details and. That end up taking months. Yeah, like, totally. Like they need to, but like, yeah. Yeah. So we should be done with it pretty soon though. Um, I'm really excited. We're going to. You know, try to premiere at a Denver Film Festival next year and and then see where it goes from there. And we just had a short film go up on The Bureau, which is kind of a streaming service for short films. So you can go to the Bureau of Creative Works and check out our short film. It's called Many Different People at Once. Oh, that's a good title. Yeah, it's uh, from an Anais Nin quote. What's the quote? So here, let me, (laughs) I reserve the right to love many different people at once and to change my prints often. (laughs) That definitely tells the story of what it's about. Yeah, that's what the movie, (laughs) that definitely, yeah. I saw that quote and I was like, we have to call the movie that. That's perfect. (laughs) Does your um, feature have a title yet or is? Yeah, so it's just called In Your 20s probably going to be a pretty intense no no i uh, not intense i think intense is the wrong word yeah it's that part out <laughs> no i think uh, so the feature so pretty much everything we're doing with our narratives is trying to strip away as much as we can from them like we're really like exercising in minimalism like how few camera movements can we tell the story? How few coverage can we get or how little coverage can we get and still tell this story and have it be impactful? 
And I think that with these films that we've been working on, it actually makes them more impactful um, because you're really, I mean, they really are about living in the spaces with the characters and there's rarely any close-ups. We don't do any cutaways. Like <laughs> we really stripped away like everything that you're supposed to have in a film. And, and it's not, it's scary because like, you know, as a filmmaker, we all want people to think that we know exactly what we're doing, you know? And you want control. Yeah. And so we're really kind of stripping that away and almost like being in a really vulnerable position, like putting out these films that don't have any like filmmaking flourishes in it. Mm-hmm. And you must also be putting like a lot of trust in your actors as well. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah, I, cause I write the films and... I'm not married to anything I write (laughs) when we go in. Like when we're making a movie about like in your twenties is about a 20 year old girl who is kind of struggling with becoming 20 and living in your twenties and that weird age where you're like over 18, but you're not old enough to go to bars yet. And like, <laughs> you think you know everything. And then the next day, you know, nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just about how relationships are kind of changing and you're changing and really starting to figure out who you are, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so, is certain. yeah. So when we're doing that, you know, I'm a 33 year old guy, you know, and I really have to put trust that they know more than I do about what it's like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I kind of remember what it was like. Like when I wrote the story, it is about my life, but I don't necessarily experience it the same way that the character does. And I really rely on the actors to bring that to it. So what have you been watching lately? Um, oh, okay, I have to think of like what we didn't talk in the last one. <laughs> um, okay, so I talked about... Yeah, I should probably do that too. Okay. So, <laughs> what I've been watching lately is, as I said in the last one, I have difficulty watching things at home, so I have to see what comes to theaters, and unfortunately that usually means like subpar documentaries or ones that are very much in the style of like sit-down interview, let's do some like flashbacks, and then some actual stuff. Um, So within that realm, I saw Hall about the um, director Hall Ashby from the 70s, which I'll say that sort of structure fit that film pretty well because he has passed away and they interviewed both actors he had worked with and other filmmakers um, and more of talked, like really like focused on one part of his career and sort of who he was versus trying to make like a historical documentary of sorts. Um, I like when people do that. Yeah, and it made me like want to go watch his films after. So I was like, it probably served its purpose. So I I love his films. If you love his films, I would recommend um, watching it. And also for people who don't know as much about sort of like the history of cinema, especially when it comes to the studio system, it's a really good example of how studios can crush incredible directors. He had one of the greatest careers within a decade, like made so many incredible films. Um, like Harold and Maude, and just mm-hmm. the list goes on. Have you seen Being There? I have not seen Being There. You should watch Being There. I think it's on Amazon Prime right now. It's okay. Uh, I just love that movie so much. It's but so beautiful. His stuff, it just 
yeah, it's the same thing. It's about relationships and just mm-hmm. how bizarre we are as people. Um, and then as soon as sort of like the 80s came in and studios had more power and being bought out, he lost his career in essence. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of, you need to give artists their freedom to make what they want. And I think it's a good argument for that. Um, I also saw, because the Denver Film Festival was going on last month, um, what's, um, oh, how do I pronounce his name? Oh, Panahi or Panahi's new film. He's the Iranian filmmaker who's been banned from filmmaking. He did Tehran Taxi that came out. Oh, I haven't seen that. Great filmmaker. Um, he's an example of kind of the opposite of what I just said, where restrictions can often make you be a stronger artist or push you into developing new things. And so Tehran Taxi, the film before this, um, he filmed entirely in a taxi cab because he wasn't allowed to make films. Um, And so it's just sort of conversations that deal with the, there's like a code of conduct that all Iranian films have to have. And so he kind of delves into that. And his new one, it's kind of like, continues off of that idea in a way so he starts driving but he actually exits his car and it's about sort of like a woman who's being oppressed by like a small town village and how this country is not modernizing in a way that's being open to everybody especially to women um, but how women are like defying that I think he's got some of the most clever writing that I've ever seen like he he tackles politics or social issues without being on the head or like nail on the head, but still like really gets his point across. So that one will probably, his, I know Tehran Taxi is on Netflix. This one will probably, um, which, oh, which is called Three Faces, will probably come to Netflix or Amazon in the next couple months. So yeah. Cool. I want to highlight a film by Sophie Fines, who's one of my favorite documentary filmmakers. Uh, she just makes beautiful, weird, strange films. <laughs> uh, she did Pervert's Guide to Ideology and Pervert's Guide to Cinema with Slavo Zizek, who's like a Marxist thinker slash um, psychoanalyst. <laughs> and... There's this film that she did. It's a very minimalist film and super beautiful called Over Your City's Grass Will Grow. It's from 2010. And it's about a German industrial artist whose name I can't pronounce, so I'm not even going to try. Just go mm-hmm. look it up. It's called Over Your City's Grass Will Grow. I it's, need to write this down as well. Yeah, it's incredibly it. beautiful. There's like barely any dialogue. It's like this... It's, it's like this... It's definitely about what you're talking about because it's almost like this city-sized art project this guy does. And most of the film is just panning shots through, like dolly shots, like through the artwork. Oh my God, that sounds beautiful. Yeah, and I tried to watch it the first time and I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is so tedious. (laughs) But... I kept thinking about it and I was in kind of a more calm mood and in the mood to just kind of like live in a film. And I thought of it and went and rewatched it and it's just incredible. I don't even know, like to have that kind of restraint to put out a movie like that, like that takes a lot of confidence and Sophie finds, I think just does that. Is that like comparable in a way to like Weissman? 
a little bit or yeah i would say we have to put effort in like what yeah. you get out is what you put in and yeah. you have to be willing to be bored definitely and patient yeah i would say that <laughs> um but yeah that's an incredibly great film i really like it and another one that's uh, also a little bit on the meditative side walk with me it's a film about a buddhist monastery in france and I clearly went through like a Buddhism film phase, but the filmmaking in it is just so no one gets interviewed. Uh, it really is about this place and the feeling of this place and the feelings that uh, these monks and Buddhist teachers and stuff are trying to bring out of you. And I think the film does a really good job at capturing that and really like letting you live in this place. So yeah, those are going to be my two today. Just and are like, those available to stream online? Because I feel yeah. like I need to watch them. So now. over your city's grass will grow. I'm not sure. I'm. Uh, I think you might have to buy that one. Okay. Um. Uh, on iTunes or something. And Walk with Me is on Netflix. Good to know. So definitely, uh, both of them are really great films. Our main film today is a film that we went to the Denver Film Festival to go see. The film that we went and saw was called When Lambs Become Lions. Um, it's a film by John Caspi. I'm I think we've decided Caspi. Caspi. But we could be wrong. K-A-S-B-E. apologize if we're pronouncing that wrong. Yeah, John, if you're listening to this film. Uh, we're really sorry. We're, we're sorry. I mean this film, this podcast. We're sorry. Um, but yeah, so it came out this year. It's currently making the festival circuit. Um, and the summary that's been, the summary that's been, I guess, supplied by the film, um, is in the Kenyan bush, a small time ivory dealer fights to stay on top while forces mobilize to destroy his trade. When he turns to his younger cousin, that's a bit of a spoiler, a conflicted wildlife ranger who hasn't been paid in months, they both see a possible lifeline. I'd yeah. say that's pretty accurate. Yeah, for sure. I think yeah. there's this movie is really dense. <laughs> Incredible film, I'll yeah. say that. Like, highly recommend. I was kind of so my first impressions of this film is just like from the very beginning, you just get a real sense of the place. It's incredibly beautiful. Like the cinematography is just gorgeous. Which was actually done by the director. Yeah. So the director shot everything i think he was his own crew too right i think he had, no you had a sound person okay and, and like in the credits there was like a second shooter because there was often a lot of oh, parallel yeah, 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 action yeah. going on i remember um, him actually saying that in the conversation yeah. afterwards now too but yeah it was incredibly beautiful and just the i mean the subject matter is just so i'm coming at this film from a vegan animal rights activist like perspective and I've had a certain view of poachers, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, very negative. It's very dehumanized in the communities like I come from, like in the animal rights world and stuff. And so this movie, for me, it was almost like a challenge to recognize their humanity mm-hmm. and really look at it from like a perspective of a country that has dealt with years of 
colonialism, violence, and it really like challenged me to feel empathy. Did you walk away with empathy? Absolutely. That's good. See, this is a film that like when I watched was sort of like what I would love to make later on, um, where even though it deals with like a political environmental issue that as outsiders, especially from the Western world, we project our own views and sort of what we've grown up with on other situations. And this one really was not biased. Like you said, doesn't Mm -hmm. often when you see, um, poachers they're portrayed in a certain way and we're like this is not good for the environment this is not good for animals but that's not what the issue was at all like you have to think of what the people who are living there experiencing are going through and i think this filmmaker did like such an incredible job of doing that like not painting anyone as a villain sort of painting the whole situation is like is what is the issue not the people um so i loved it but exactly i think that's that's one of the most powerful things you can do with documentary. And that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. And this film really challenges you to think about what's the underlying issue. Are these people out there poaching and stuff because they think it's fun or because it's like a fun pastime or something? No, it's like a history of colonialism, violence, poverty, and it's people trying to survive and feed their families and like feed their families. You see, yeah. Yeah. And I think the, one of the most powerful things you can do is like in cinema in general, whether it's uh, a narrative or a documentary is taking people that are generally portrayed as being monsters mm-hmm. and showing you that they are human beings and it's more complicated than you think it is. Yeah, and I think as you said, it gave you empathy, and I think that's what documentaries should do, is give you empathy from something or someone other than yourself. And I think it's super easy with political and, and environmental documentaries. Like I was working for an organization earlier this year, and I walked away from wanting to do that work because I was like, as much as I agree in the cause I am fighting for, it is so one-sided and it's so biased and you're walking in with a goal. Whereas I think documentary needs to be an understanding. Like we said, more questions than answers. And I think this film did a good job of, he could have easily portrayed these people as bad people with the amount of footage he probably had, but didn't like created both sides that were so complex. And I think that's more important. I think I don't know, it's hard in today's world, are humans more important than the environment? But it's like, I think it's more important to be truthful than it is to project your own kind of purpose and goals. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that that's like, I don't think that that is, um, having that view is inherently like endorsing, Yeah. you know, the problems. I mean, there are real problems that come from poaching, Obviously, the animals are being extinct. There's huge environmental issues. Like for me, like when you're just commodifying animals and like selling, you know, killing like these huge animals just for like a little piece of them. Like to me, it is still horribly wrong. Like ideally. Mm -hmm. But understanding why it happens and what the real underlying issues are, I think is the most important thing because it really comes out of human beings trying to survive and take care of their families. And I think that if there wasn't such a fucked up capitalist market for this ivory and stuff, you know, 
And like the root of the problem is, I would say, colonialism, colonialism and capitalism. Yeah. You know, capitalism has no morals. Like if people can make money from something really rare, you know, like we can't just implicate the people who are at the bottom of this pyramid because who are the people that are really profiting from this? It's not really the poachers, you know, it's the people trading. Yeah. (laughs) He's getting calls like, when are you going to do this? When are you going to do this? And the sad thing is like the characters or actual real life people, um, like X and his like assistant Luca who are mm-hmm. going on these hunts like the like the now repercussions if you're caught killing an ele- elephant is you're killed on the spot so yeah. they're not they're sacrificing so much where it's like yeah if someone at the head like I don't want to talk too, too much politics but like look at our president and his sons right now what they've been caught doing it's like they're I think not... if we're I think if we're doing a documentary podcast we can talk yeah. about politics like, <laughs> I just hate the administration right now and don't want to talk no like, it's awful yeah. I, I, I feel um, yeah. It can go down a terrible like rabbit hole, but they can get out of it. They can hire lawyers. They have the money. People up are not going to get hurt. They're literally putting their lives on the line, and then subsequently their family too. Yeah. So they wouldn't be doing what they were doing if that if there were other options. You know? Yeah, totally. And we do kind of get an answer to that later on in the film, which I'm not going to say much about. But well, I'd say at the beginning though, because so X who. There's another guy in the film, well, I guess we already said cousins, but his cousin, um, Asan, is working on the opposite side. So it's cool to see these two family members, one on one side, one on the other, um, how they sort of ethically go into doing what they're doing. But Asan, who's working for like the wildlife police, doesn't get paid ever. Yeah. And he, the whole time, is contemplating switching to poaching or like maybe giving up some information because he can't feed his family. Yeah. And it's that stress of like, uh, what are these people supposed to do? It's like, it's hard. I think even it even kind of speaks to like a bigger issue, you know, like globally that in a capitalist society, like morality is very difficult to have, Mm -hmm. you know? And if you're like on the bottom rung of that, then I mean, it's even harder. And it's almost like an extreme example of like, you know, what everyone faces, I think, in our world that yeah. doesn't have much of a safety net for people, mm-hmm. you know, that just lets people suffer, you know, in the name of commerce. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> you know? how, like, we sit here and we kind of talked about this earlier, but like, and judge what other people are doing or yeah. think something is like a single issue when it's like so much more multifaceted. And when you watch this, you see. Oh, like I had to check myself for a second. When we think about how to fix these issues, we rarely ever think about ending poverty. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like we give money to people to go kill. We give the government gives poor people money sometimes <laughs> to go out and kill other poor people who are just trying to survive, the poachers. Right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So these rangers who are poor rarely getting paid by the government or whoever i don't know who pays them exactly but i think it's the government you know they're missing paychecks and stuff um but they're struggling they're just trying to survive they're being paid to go out and kill other people that are struggling and just trying to survive while these other people yeah you know are sitting at the top 
just watching. And we don't even get to see them in the film because it's too hard to to penetrate, Mm -hmm. you know? And when we think about this and when we think about any problem, whether it's people working at an oil company or people working, you know, being poachers or people out shoplifting or something, the problem isn't generally the people at the bottom rung. The problem is with the people who are extracting all of the resources and all of the finances, you know, from the world. And we're increasing an inequality. There's more billionaires now than ever. You know, it's like, it's to the root of so many problems. And, and when you really think about most of the problems in the world, most of them come from fucked up power structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if I think now, like, a lot of the environmental talk is always talking about just transitions, when especially when it comes to oil. Like, similar to what you were saying, the only reason I think that's being talked about right now, this is a bit of a tangent, but, like, is for political purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if we don't do this and include people, this is the first time they're actually talking about this, it means we're not going to have power in the next election. So it's great that it's being thought about, but it's still from such... Yeah. Uh, like, what am I going to get out of this? Totally. But what I find interesting to transition a bit back to the film is that this is a film that wasn't like politically structured, but I yeah. think it, but I think it like provokes more conversation because it is in that way. Like, because it's so like open and about more of the struggles of these two cousins that it makes you think this way because it's not like saying this is bad or this is good. It's like, this is complex and it allows, I think, a much more informed dialogue than like if an environmental organization had made a film like this. Totally. And I think that's like where we need to go. And that's what Mm -hmm. I loved about this film so much is because I feel like a lot of people, when they're thinking about making a film that is about a bigger issue, a lot of times it turns into like an hour and a half long commercial for their Mm -hmm. cause, you know, whereas I think a film like this is like more impactful and when you watch it, like you're not getting a black and white answer, but it does make you think, you know, like when you come out of this movie and you're like, I kind of liked X, like, (laughs) and you said something when we left and it was what I was thinking, we were like, Oh, this played like a narrative in a way. And I give so much props to the editing team on this. Oh my God. Yeah. Like the backstories, they went down to Kenya and shot for a year, like many, many years. Um, and so like, probably had like thousands and thousands of hours of well, footage. Well, I think he said they had 700 hours, okay. which is still That's still a lot. Hours. In my mind, it's thousands still. <laughs> yeah. But like to then, they put it in a form that like, you know, it wasn't your typical like five act structure, but it kind of was. And it had reveals and it had like, you don't realize they're cousins for a bit of time. And that was like a great like plant and payoff sort of situation. And the film continues that way of like, just following these people, but in a very, very structured way so that you could kind of understand what was going on. Um, and I can't imagine how hard that is to do with a documentary. Yeah. Um, and I also want to give him props, this filmmaker, because I'm so sick of drones. <laughs> They're all over YouTube. They're all over every like shitty movie you see. But the way he used the drones in this was actually really good. <laughs> yeah, because you don't think of them as drone shots. Yeah. That's so true. Totally. And I'll say, like, the shooting. like There's only a couple, the... but I remember being like, this is how you use a drone. Yeah. This is when you use it. I'm not going to say, like, when, you know, but 
I mean, yeah. there's nothing like important that happens in the drone shots, but the way he uses it is the way you should use it. And I think for me as like a new documentary filmmaker, like I've been told don't say the word aspiring because that like discredits yourself. But like what he's doing, like I'm so like in awe of sort of like the the connection he had with his characters. Like someone, Absolutely. Someone the trust asked, that he built with those people like is... Yeah, because they're in very vulnerable positions, and he talked about that a lot after the film. Like he was going on actual hunts with them. Like there's mm-hmm. scenes of like running with the camera shaking, um, and you don't feel like you feel like you have full access to this world. And he said he actually did, but like as someone who's worked on projects, I find that's always the hardest element is like building trust with someone to be like you can film everything, and I'm going to show you everything. So like. And that's what they did. Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other really cool thing was, uh, as we were talking about the beginning, like working with my actors and stuff, like he kind of took exactly that motto to working with them. Cause I think he said that if the two people in the film who their lives basically depended on, you know, like it's they were in a very vulnerable position they could have literally been killed by you know showing some of this stuff um anything that they really wanted him to take out he would you know and i think that that kind of respect is very important Mm -hmm. when you're making a film that especially a documentary yeah that can really affect people's lives when you're telling their story and i think that as filmmakers that's a really important lesson that you really have to respect the humanity of the people that you're filming. Yeah, so it was interesting as someone did, I think, ask a question similar to that during the Q&A after, and he did say there was a lot of stuff they omitted, Yeah. especially about more of their personal relationships um, or, like, the process they used to, like, make the poison to kill the elephants. But it's weird when you watch the film, it didn't feel like there was anything missing. So I think it's a good thing for, like, filmmakers to remember that as much as maybe something's really important or you see, like, that's that would make the film that like, yeah, the trust between the people you're working with is more important and the audience isn't going to know you had that. So like, I try to remember that now being like, as much as this is great, like that film, I didn't think it needed it. I think there's another important lesson too, that like sometimes when we watch like these films, we want to see like gory violence and stuff. And I really like credit him for like not including that in Mm -hmm. there because I don't think it would have served the film. It's kind of similar to Grizzly Man. Oh, yeah. You know, with, like, Herzog doesn't actually, like... You never hear the audio of Timothy Treadwell dying. Like, you know, you don't need it. Mm -mm. And you can still make an incredibly powerful film. Well, I think... And when you go away from it, sometimes in your head, you think you saw it already. I was about to say that. I think our imaginations are so much more powerful than what we could see. Yeah. Same thing, like, I love films. I like silence, I think, speaks louder than words do oftentimes. And so it's like, yeah, when you have to infer, you f- I think you feel it more. There's a lot that could be said about this film. So much. It's I- beautiful. I think that's the one thing I would like to say. Someone who, like, is obsessed with cinematography as well. Yeah. It is so beautifully shot. Yeah. It's incredible. And I definitely will give my rating is a definitely go see. So will I. I'll say go watch it. Yeah. As as soon as you can. Yes. And uh, yeah, go into it with an open mind and remember that humans are humans and we're all flawed. 
Well, I think that does it for this episode. And we will be having an interview with Keegan Kun coming up soon, the director of a film called Running for Good, the Fiona Oaks documentary, which is a film that I really love. So um, I'm excited to talk with him. So going forward, um, for people listening, if there's any documentary you've seen or that you know that's coming out that you think that we should talk about, Yeah, feel it can be free. old, new, we we'll don't care. watch anything, seriously. Yeah. Um, we want to talk about documentaries as films, and we don't necessarily... We aren't here just to promote new films. We're also trying to watch older ones, watch pretty much anything that really speaks to documentary as film. Mm-hmm. And deals with humanity. That's what I like. Exactly. Yeah, so definitely send your suggestions to a documentary podcast at gmail.com. And our website is a documentarypodcast.com. Visit us on Instagram at a documentary podcast. Mine is at CMS Moments. And mine is at Joshua LeBure. Alright, thanks for tuning in to a documentary podcast, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Sweet.